If you have a Bible, turn to Job chapter 32. If you need a Bible, there are those on the seat. Job chapter 32, if you're turning there, is the beginning by, of a speech by a man named Elihu. Now you've heard of Elijah. Elijah means Yahweh is my God. Some of you have heard of Elihu. It's tough to get to Elihu. He doesn't come up until after a lot of long speeches in the book of Job. Elihu means he is my God. Most likely Job is written before, uh, the story of Job happens before God speaks to Moses and says, I am that I am. Yahweh, I am. Before that, God had revealed himself in various forms, even visions, before his word was written down, visions and dreams. And so as we've gone through Job, we've heard made mention various visions and dreams. And Elihu mentioned these, mentions these types of visions and dreams as well, where he understands things of God. Elihu is an enigmatic figure. He's mysterious. It's tough to pin him down. It sounds like he's just a cocksure young man who is frustrated by the lack of answers and goes on and on, it says, burning with anger. Verse 1, it says, so these three men, Job's other three friends, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. It's easy to write off Elihu. A number of scholars have written him off throughout the centuries, saying he doesn't quite fit the rest of the book. His language is different than others. His story seems like it's just repeating what the three friends said at times. Probably some scholars or some Uh, teachers added this story to try to round off some of the rough edges of the friends along the way. The problem with this is at least threefold, maybe four. See, in none of the ancient manuscripts that we have is the story or these chapters of Elihu excluded. It's in all of them. Another problem with Elihu is that God himself burns with anger, but he doesn't burn with anger at Elihu. He burns with anger at Job's three friends. So if we want to say that he was just an angry young man and he needed to calm down with age, it's misappropriating anger. God himself was anger. Why does God not express anger at Elihu? Elihu. 
Job himself, when he repents in chapter 42, repents of some of the things that Elihu brings up. Elihu is this mysterious figure that if we don't understand who he is, I believe that we miss the point of Job. And understanding who Elihu is and what he says and what he teaches is not a simple thing, nor is understanding how God uses suffering in our lives a simple thing that can be answered with trite, short answers. One last thing that we have to wrestle with Elihu for is that in the ancient world, in this type of dialogue, you kept speaking until your argument ran out, until you lost the debate. All of Job's three friends continue speaking, but their speeches get shorter and shorter and shorter until at last, when the third one should have spoken, he even remains silent. While Job's speeches continue to get longer and longer and longer, and we looked last week at the culmination of that in chapter 31, and the week before that at chapter 28, at how Job was holding on to hope in wisdom in chapter 28, and then calling on the judge to judge justly in chapter 31. We said, even in these things, we don't see Job sinning. No one comes to answer Job except Elihu does for six chapters. Four distinct speeches. And what does Job say after Elihu speaks? Nothing. Not a word. What role might Elihu play in this? If we can't write him off, he certainly is a confusing figure at times. At times it seems like he is just repeating the things that the three friends said. For example, in chapter 36, verse 7, turn ahead with me, chapter 36, verse 7. He said, God does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Sounds an awful lot like the friends, right? You get what you deserve and nothing more. Is that the message of Elihu, though? Well, you have to keep reading here. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress 
into a broad place where there was no cramping, and what was set on your table was full of fatness. And then the key verse, verse 21, Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Elihu's saying that affliction comes on rulers and the lowly to bring correction. Affliction comes on those who are in high powers and high places in order to bring them to a place where they might turn again to God and recognize that they are a person who is under authority as well. The story that's told in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 9 of Jesus with a centurion. Remember this story? A Roman soldier came to Jesus to ask him for help for one of his servants. And Jesus questions him some. And the key response that the centurion gives to Jesus is, I am a man under authority. And those under me are under my authority. When I say go, the ones under me go. When I say come, they come. But I'm subject to other authorities. And when they say go, I go. And when they say come, I come. God is the one who's sovereign over all these things. And so when he brings affliction, he brings it for a purpose. And the question is, what is that purpose? And oftentimes, oftentimes that purpose is to bring us to a position of recognizing God's authority again. When we've ignored it for a long time. Just as the rulers are oftentimes brought to a position of lowliness. And they have to turn to somebody else for help. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, was famous for when the the armies of foreign powers would surround them, instead of turning to God for help when they were overwhelmed, they would turn to the nations around them. They would turn to the nations that didn't serve God. And in the irony of ironies, it would seem in our minds, God brings those very powers to bring affliction on his people, to remind them to turn back to God instead of those powers. Now you're probably asking the question, what does this have to do with Job? I thought we've said that Job was basically innocent in all of this. Was Job being brought low to turn back to God? And Job was basically innocent in all the things he listed out there in chapter 31. But remember one thing, two things. First, he never said that he, didn't, he was completely without sin. That was not his argument. More importantly for this time, we have never said that Job hasn't sinned throughout this process. And in fact, one of the key questions is, where has Job sinned? And we know that Job has sinned because in chapter 42, verse 6, he says, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. When God speaks and when Elihu has spoken, he says, I repent. And Job's key sin, you can find in the story of Elihu, is that he believes 
wrongly about God. We can sin when we believe wrongly. Job believes that God, because all of this affliction has come on him, that God has turned from his friend to his enemy. He believes that God is now against him, and he's confused at why that might be. And Elihu calls Job's fear, his accusation of God, more than just wrong belief, he calls it sin. He says back in chapter 32, Job, you are wrong. God is not angry at you. God has another purpose for what he is doing in this, but you can't see it and neither can I. Let's keep reading a little bit here, chapter 32, and see where he goes with it. Remember, he waited to speak with Job. He was present through the whole discourse, it seems, with the other three friends, He was young and he was patient, listening for his older and perhaps wiser colleagues to give Job right advice. But Elihu now is burning with anger, not only at Job, but his three friends as well. And it says, And Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. He's speaking directly to the three friends right now. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Pause there and just note one thing. Oftentimes we do think that wisdom comes with age, and wisdom does oftentimes come with age. But Elihu is speaking of a wisdom that is even greater than the wisdom that simply comes with years of experience. He is speaking of the wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God. Spirit, another word for spirit, the wind of God or the breath of the Almighty The spirit in verse 8 that he's speaking of there, even though it's lowercase in the text, is not just any spirit in man, our soul, but the spirit of God that is within man. And God's wisdom is always over even the wisdom of age. When the two come together, then that's great, age and God's wisdom. But true wisdom comes from God, he says. Behold, verse 11, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He's saying it's God's job to justify, to judge, to declare righteous. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. 
They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? Referring to the silence of Job's friends. I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Now he turns his attention to Job, and here's what he says. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. This is important. He invited Job to respond to him. And Job chooses to not respond to him, which is significant. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he, God, finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all of my paths. Behold, in this, you are not right. I will answer you. For God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men, terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, 
and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things, twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Of a truth God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? He should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath. All flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away. And the mighty are taken away by no human hand. This is God's word. I read it at some length because I want you to see some of the complexity of Elihu's argument. It's not cut and dry, is it? It sounds as if he's echoing the friends. But pay attention clearly that when he condemns Job... He references how Job perceived that God had turned to his enemy. When he corrects Job, it is on that one point. And when he corrects the friends, the three friends, it is saying that you have put yourself in the seat of God and judged Job in a way that you are not capable of judging him. Now, Elihu's anger brings up an important question. What do we do with it? Is he right in his anger? Is it just youthful zeal? And his words play out in a very different way than just the words of an angry man who's speaking without thinking about his words. As I said before, God himself 
burns with anger. As we see with Jesus' own life, not once but twice, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, he goes into the temple, God's own house, and he sees the corruption that's going on there, and he, it burns with anger and overturns the table and casts out people. Whose anger is a righteous anger. But righteous anger is really tough to employ. I can speak from my own experience. Most of the time when I get angry, it's because a seed of righteousness is in there, but a plank of self-righteousness combines with a heavy weight of impatience. And I speak without thinking. That was not what Elihu had done. He had listened to all of his friends' arguments or Job's friends' arguments and waited to speak until this time and the Spirit of God equips him to remind Job that God is not your enemy, but that suffering has a purpose. And even a righteous man can be brought to affliction. Did you catch this in there? Sometimes to even prevent him from entering into sin himself. To come and to protect a righteous person, to bring him low and direct him back to God because the path he is on is a path that is leading toward a self-righteousness. The declaring of ourselves justified, righteous before God. Have you ever been in that type of place where you seem to be doing everything right? You're beating the habits that have plagued you before. You are in reading the Bible. You're doing nice things for your family and getting the honey-do list done. And yet your impatience with everyone else when they're not pulling their weight grows shorter or grows greater and greater and greater. Your patience becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. We don't know that for sure, but it's hinted at here when, Job, when Elihu tells Job, do you understand why God has done this to you? He's bringing you back to a place where you can again serve him to restore your youth, he says. Chapter 3, verse 25. That your flesh may become the flesh of youth. Return to the days of vigor. You'll draw your life back out of your pit, the pit. And that's exactly what he does at the end of this. Physically for Job, what he promises to do for all of us spiritually, but not just spiritually. The same promise of physical restoration is given to all of us who trust in Christ as it is given to Job. We may think, but I see people die all the time who trust Christ. I see people suffer sickness all the time in this. But God's promise of that new Jerusalem we read about earlier is not just that we would all be spiritual beings with wings on our back floating around in clouds. God's promise is much more visceral, tangent, something you can touch and grab onto. It is the promise that our physical bodies will be resurrected just as Jesus' was. 
and made new in such a way that they will never be able to die or be injured or suffer hurt or harm. It's not to say we won't still bear the scars of this life. Jesus bore the scar in his side, but those scars become marks of treasure. Those scars become signs of the suffering of the battle that was fought on your behalf and on behalf of others to rescue them out of this dying, war-filled world and to be restored into, delivered into, pushed into a place where there is no more death or hunger or pain or suffering or tears. That is the hope of Jesus' restoration is for what Job gets in the end, a full physical restoration, all of his family restored, all of the delight in all of these things renewed, and the suffering becoming a memory of something that you tell stories of for the rest of your days, but never have to endure again. Suffering is a powerful thing. Suffering is something that God puts in our life for a purpose. In Psalm 119.71, great psalm about the word of God and the law of God. The author says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's a difficult thing to say. But it's what God calls us to say. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. John Piper, the pastor who has experienced cancer and great suffering and also the temptations toward pride and arrogance in his own ministry, said this, There are dimensions of godliness that the righteous can only learn through affliction. There are dimensions of righteousness, of godliness, that the righteous can only learn through affliction. I've seen this in more senior pastors who are full of confidence and yet have some type of experience where their confidence is combined with humbleness, having seen and experienced the grace of God through affliction. I suspect that Elihu might have experienced this even as a young man to be able to speak with this wisdom toward Job's three friends, but we can't say for sure. Elihu, Elihu speaks truth, but I'm not ready to defend him entirely. It seems like he may miss the point at times, like I miss the point at times, like any teacher misses the point at times, like any human teacher misses the point at times. But the point of Elihu isn't that he gets everything right. The point of Elihu is that he's a pointer. The point of Elihu is that he's a pointer. Now, if you're a computer programmer, you know what a pointer is. 
If you're a hunter, you know what a dog is when he does a pointing. If you're a theologian, you use different words, a type, typology of the one who's to come, pointing to something greater. If you're a literary expert or or lover, you know what it is to present a forerunner to somebody else who's coming to enter the scene to bring a fuller picture of what it is. Elihu is preparing the way here for God to enter the scene. And that's exactly what he does. Job remains silent and God enters the scene. John the Baptist was a pointer and prepared the way. And was a forerunner for Jesus entering the scene. Elihu prepares the crowd. Like a comedian going on before another comedian to warm up the crowd. Elihu prepares the Job and the three friends and all of us for us to hear God's wisdom when he comes on the scene, for us to understand what he's saying, because God's, if you just go skip ahead and read God's speech, in some ways it falls flat, unless you've read Elihu and read the rest of Job. And that's why we've taken the time to go through this whole story so that we can understand what God says. There's no Cliff Notes version to the story of Job. And I hope that all of you through this will go or have already gone and will continue to go back and read the story of Job and make it through some of the difficult long stretches so that you can understand something more of what God is doing when suffering comes into your life and the life of others. Because God uses suffering for his perfect purposes. And sometimes it's to bring correction to a blatant sin. But oftentimes it's to move us in a path of growing in righteousness, in godliness, that cannot be learned in any other way than the hard road of suffering. It's a road that Jesus has traveled with us and continues to travel with us. God is with us in all these times, never leaves us alone. Let's pray. Our Father, you are our God. Elihu. Yahweh is our God, Elijah. How can we understand the role of suffering in our life? It is still greater than us, but yet you've revealed some things to us that we would understand it. Give us understanding, Lord, and wisdom. Give us patience and endurance. Give us compassion for others. Give us silence when it's needed. And give us the words to speak when they are needed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.